Hello and welcome to Haaretz Weekly. I'm Allison Kaplan-Summer. While we focus on breaking news on this podcast and there's no shortage of headlines in Israel this week, today we have a different kind of news story. It's not every day that a book written by a Jewish-American author featuring Israel's most dominant political family wins the Pulitzer Prize. And it is certainly not every day that that news catches the author in Jerusalem ahead of the city's Writers' Festival and Book Fair. Joshua Cohen, whose satirical novel, The Netanyahu's, an account of a minor and ultimately even negligible episode in the history of a very famous family, was published a year ago. He found out that his book won the U.S.'s most prestigious literary award not long after landing at Ben Gurion Airport. Joshua Cohen is 41 years old. He grew up in Atlantic City, New Jersey, and before The Netanyahu's, he has written five previous novels and numerous short stories. He joins us here in the Haaretz Podcast Studio in Tel Aviv. My conversation with him is coming up. Joshua Cohen, first of all, congratulations, Mazel Tov. If you'd gotten this news back home in New York, you'd be getting wined and dined. They'd be stopping you on the streets of Brooklyn to shake your hand. And the news caught you in Jerusalem, of all places. Yeah. Yeah, I guess my unconscious is very strong. I don't know. I came to Israel, I guess, a week before the Jerusalem Writers' Festival and the combined Writers' Festival and Book Fair, which start, I think, this next week. I've lost track of all time, by the way. So, <laughs> I, you know, and I, I wanted to come a week before so I could get some kind of quiet writing done. And really, the, the day after I arrived, I was just about to begin getting some work done, trying to find my way through this book that I am writing. And then I got a phone call that I, I won this thing. The Oscar winners are all like, oh, I never expected this to happen. Like you genuinely, did you expect the Pulitzer Prize to land on you this way? If I thought that I was going to win the Pulitzer for a book called The Netanyahu's, I, I, you know, I would have to be crazy to want to be in Israel <laughs> when that happened. And look, I mean, I haven't slept in a couple of days and I've been doing a lot of talking. So I haven't had a lot of time to think. But not only did I not expect to win a Pulitzer, right? I mean, it, there's no shortlist announced. There's no, you know, that nothing leaks out of that. And I didn't even know the date that the Pulitzers were going to be announced I, because a book like this shouldn't have had a chance. I mean, forget the fact that it shouldn't have won. It shouldn't have had a chance. It's incomprehensible to me. And I'm not saying that in a in a modest way. I'm saying it is a, in a way of understanding politics and how literary politics work. I don't want to agree with you, but those of us who are sort of steeped in the world of Israel and the diaspora and know about the family, know about the Netanyahu's, couldn't imagine that such what we consider sort of our, you know, niche ghetto subject would be of such interest to the wider world so much Absolutely. so that you won such a prize. Yeah, I mean, this is the largest American literary prize, right? And the book has characters in it that most Americans can't pronounce their names. <laughs> Someone was introducing me on a very mainstream kind of American TV 
network and they were beginning they said and now we're talking to the new Pulitzer Prize winner Joshua Cohen author of the book the net uh, <laughs> uh, author of the book the net uh, you know it's just like three or four attempts so to me it's, it's baffling yeah <laughs> so welcome to the studio in the Haaretz building which I think is super appropriate for you to come to because I don't think there's another building in the world where so many people have sat and thought about the Netanyahu's have written about the Netanyahu's mm. have investigated the Netanyahu so it's kind of an inappropriate uh, place for you to land <laughs> after you win I don't know if there's a record for the longest title for a Pulitzer Prize winning novel but yours is a doozy the Netanyahu's an account of a minor and ultimately even negligible episode in the history of a very famous family. It was published on June 22nd, 2021, exactly a week almost after June 13th, 2021, when Netanyahu's record-long prime ministership uh, came to an end. I mean, presuming he's not very fond of your portrayal of his families, one could say it was a pretty bad week for him that week. Yeah, no, I'm sure that he used that week in which to read a book that was newly published in English. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sure that that's how that's how he spent his time. Uh-huh. So true confession, like many other Israelis, I did not run out to buy the book when it was first published because it came at a time when all we were thinking about and talking about in Israel was BB, BB, BB. The last thing we wanted to do in our spare time was to check out a novel called The Netanyahu's. So I came to it in the fall because my colleague Anshel Pfeffer, who literally wrote the book on Netanyahu, he is uh, BB Netanyahu's biographer. He wrote the book in 2018. He wrote an excellent piece. It was called The Netanyahu's is about so much more than The Netanyahu's. And I was like, okay, I saw the headline. Oh, you know, for those who have not yet read the book, and I'm going to say yet, because obviously everyone's going to read the book who hasn't already. Just to sum it up, I'll use Anshel's words. He wrote, The Netanyahu's is a short and riotous novel focusing on historian Ruben Blum, who in the winter of 1959 is the only Jewish member of faculty at the fictional Corbin College. The lives of Blum and his small family are disrupted for a disastrous afternoon and evening by the arrival of Ben Zion, his wife Tzila, and their three sons, Yoni, Bibi, and Ido Netanyahu. Ben Zion is out of a job trying to find a college that will hire him. Blum has been detailed by Corbin as its only Jewish lecturer to chaperone him around campus. And then Anshel writes that these two protagonists are, quote, ciphers for the two great post-war Jewish communities, and the point in history when they met was when those communities were beginning to come into their own. American Jews were just beginning to feel a fully integrated part of American life, perhaps the first diaspora community that could rid itself of the curse of an eternal downtrodden minority, and Israeli Jews, just a decade after gaining independence, were still getting used to Jewish sovereignty. On point? Yeah, I mean, it sounds good to me. Yeah, <laughs> I, I don't, I mean, I think that, I mean, I'm very flattered by that review and by that take. You always have that, the Roman Jakobson problem where an elephant can't be a zoologist, you know? And so I think that's what I was trying to do. It's what I was feeling my way towards. But when you're, I think when you're writing this from, you know, from the ground up, let's say, it's never that clear. If it was that clear, it'd be a lot easier to write books. <laughs> It's much more sophisticated, by the way, than I described it to friends. I said it's about a bunch of unruly Israelis invading a Philip Roth campus novel and wreaking havoc with the protagonist's life. That was my description. Sure. I mean, (laughs) sounds like it sells copies. I like it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's got that dichotomy of the serious and really funny, you know, Mm. physical comedy. You've uh, said that you were inspired to a certain extent by sitcoms. Did you start with the serious or did you start with the funny? I mean, I started with this story from Harold Bloom, 
the American literary critic, who was dying. And he wanted to talk to somebody from outside of academia who was willing to sit around with him for hours as he tried to talk about his life in somewhat of a chronological fashion in order to maybe create a memoir. He ended up writing or putting together a memoir toward the end of his life, but it was more of a poetic memoir about mm-hmm. his experiences and introductions to romantic poetry and to Shakespeare, uh, which were specialties. But he never actually ended up putting down on the page the people he met and the people he was around and his own teachers. And, you know, he had a very long and a fascinating life. And I think we were in the middle of some story about, I don't know, something about Derrida or somewhere, you know, and then BB is on CNN in the background, you know, Harold sitting in front of me is in a wheelchair. Right above his head is CNN and BB comes on and Harold kind of turns around and he said, oh, you know, I met him. And I think, Oh, okay. Now we're we're out of chronological sequence. Here. Okay, but where you know did you meet him in the '90s when when Bibi was UN ambassador? Is it in Israel? He said no. I think it was '59, '60, something like that. He was ten years old. He was with his father. And I said okay. He said yeah. It was a job interview. Tells me the story. I said, wow, that's an amazing kind of story. And the story is just, he was asked to, you know, take him around, right? Mm-hmm. It's the setup, right? Yeah, yeah. It's not all the other things that happen. It's the setup. And then, of course, Gene Bloom, who's, thank God, is still with us. Harold died a few years ago. But Gene comes into the room. And what are you talking about? Telling this story. Oh, I remember that. And she tells her version of the story. And then, of course, they fight. And they say, no, I think this is what happened. No, this is what happened. No, the kids were like this. And then we got back on track and continued on with talking to Harold about, you know, this book that he was wanted to put out. Did that story instantly like get put in the file cabinet of your mind of I have to write about this? It stuck. I realized that it, it was a perfect structural metaphor and allegory for so much. And it was a distillation or crystallization of so many feelings and directions that I wanted to go in my work. And I think I'm always looking for compression. I'm always looking for the anecdote into which things can be compressed for the form that really can be made very dense with meaning. And so it immediately had that form of a, almost of a parable. The mixture of historical real figures like Benzion Netanyahu and your very fictionalized protagonist, Leon Blum, as opposed to Harold Bloom. Why that choice? Was there something just particularly interesting about the actual real life Benzion Netanyahu that made you say, okay, like I'm going to go as close to the real thing as possible. Whereas on the side of Harold Bloom, you said, no, I'm going to refashion this character to be more of a contrast, I guess, to Netanyahu. Maybe. I mean, first of all, I never met Benzion Netanyahu, right? (laughs) And though I grew up in Atlantic City, which is the summer home of all Philadelphia Jews with, you know, who have enough money for a shore house. I know a lot of people and grew up around a lot of people who remembered Bibi. But I never met him personally, but I met Harold and I knew Harold and I loved him. And in many ways, he was too close to me. And also, if you write about a person like Harold, it would be the most unbelievable thing in the world. The man had an eidetic memory. I mean, he was truly a genius. And it would distract from the, I think, the centrality that the Benzion Netanyahu character needed. Yeah, I, I think I used their real names really frankly, because I I conceived of this book as a Trump book to begin with. In a way, the Jews came later is a funny thing to say. (laughs) Do you remember when there was that the solar eclipse? Yeah. Right. And, you know, they say, don't look at the solar eclipse. And then Trump steps out on the White House balcony. And what does he do? He looks directly into the sun. Uh Right. And for me, that's writing about Trump. I just I couldn't look directly at the sun. I'd go blind. But I'm living under this 
Trump regime. And I'm from Atlantic City, so I've heard that name for 41 years of my life, right? I worked at a Trump casino. My father has sued many Trump casinos. Like, it's the David Friedman bubble. You know, this is really a book about the Trump years, and it's a book about, you know, family coming to crash. Quote-unquote, good liberal who's who's living the life of the mind, who thinks that, like, that's sufficient unto itself. And then this, you know, raucous family comes and upends their liberal pieties, in a way. You know, that to me was essentially my condition, under Trump. So the Netanyahu's did to Ruben Blum what the Trumps did to America? What the Trumps did to me. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. During those years, I was writing all these compare and contrast. Trump, Bibi, the father figure the, mm-hmm. that you could never please. They both had these very larger than life fathers and the sons, right? Mm-hmm. You know, we were comparing Don Jr. to Yair. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We all became kind of, you know, amateur psychoanalysts, right? you know, for a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, people in Israel have been doing it about uh, Benzio Netanyahu sure. and Bibi for years. Like, that was nothing new, but that we had this sort of comparative figure in America was... Uh... Yeah. So, can I ask you how you knew Harold Bloom? Were you a student? Oh, no. I think that's why he wanted to spend time with me, because I wasn't someone from the university. He and Gene Bloom were very close with Peter Cole and Adina Hoffman. You know them? The, the Peter yeah. Cole's a you know, marvelous poet and translator. Nadina is a, a nonfiction writer, an essayist, a critic, and translator as well. And um, they live half the year in New Haven and half the year in Yushalayim. So Peter introduced me to Harold and to Jean. And I think, you know, in many ways, he read some books of mine, right? But I mean, when, you know, when... And praised some books of yours. He did. But, but when, you know, when Harold reads a book of yours, it's when you say, oh, I'll read your book, you're thinking, okay, is that a week-long commitment? Is two weeks? I mean, you know, Harold looked at a page and that was reading and he had it memorized. The first time I really met him, it was that party trick of his where, you know, you shake his hand, you come in and he just stares at you and recites your work back to you just from memory. Mm-hmm. And it's disarming to say the least. So he sort of informally put you in the pantheon, right? He was naming the great Jewish novels, I guess, of the last century and mentioned you in the same breath with people. And now it's official, right? <laughs> I mean, I don't like there's no such thing as official. It's like, yeah, sure. I mean, but that was the essential joke of being Harold, right? Mm-hmm. That I think, you know, you grow up in the Bronx speaking Yiddish, like, you know, that's your first language. You learn English only later. And you grow up to become the first Jew in the Yale English department and you convince people that you are the Shakespeare expert, that you are the expert in romantic poetry. And then you write a book called The Western Canon so that Harold Bloom from the Bronx comes up with The Western Canon. And then the idea that like the Pulitzer Committee, you know, whoever these people are like, the canon, it's so sincere and it's so beautiful in its delicate, very fragile sincerity. But like, as we all know, the canons, they're made to be forgotten and broken the next day. I don't think it's uh, gonna, most of the you know <laughs> books in the canon are not going to be broken, forgotten. And obviously there was a lot of blowback um, with uh, Harold Bloom's canon, et cetera. Yeah. But the point I wanted to make with the Pulitzer, you're sort of now in the line with the Bellows and the Malamudes and uh, Philip Roth and not so recently, but uh, Michael Shaben. I wanted to ask you how you feel about sort of being the next guy, the all guys in that line. And particularly because we're here in Israel is all of these writers touch on Israel at points in their work and some explore it, you know, even more in depth. 
But unlike your predecessors, like in your work, you've really confronted Israel head on. And particularly in this novel where an assimilated American Jew meets this raging Israeli ideologue in The Moving Kings, your previous Mm -hmm. book with the combat soldiers in America. I mean, do you feel like it's your personal familiarity with Israel or do you feel that, you know, American Jewish life has now become so much more about Israel that it's uh, playing such a more central part in your work? If, you know, you want to put yourself in that line of American Jewish novelists? I've written a number of books, and yeah, two of them have absolutely, you know, try and deal with Israel, though it's funny, I think, of those two books, right, of Moving Kings, you named, and, and Netanyahu, as you put them together, they're probably 450 pages, 500, something like that, the two books together, and I think maybe only a combined 20 pages of those 450, 500 pages are actually set in Israel. Right, but they're on American turf, but they're dealing with Israeli Exactly, yeah, and, yeah. and I think that that's something that, that I feel does set, not me apart, but my generation certainly, and, and certainly not just of, you know, say Jewish writers in America, where, you know, I could run out of this studio right now and go to Natbag and get on it. And if I have a credit card that works and if I, you know, a passport and I could be in New York in, you know, 13 hours, 14 hours, I could go and just get off, take a taxi, get off at, at Katz's Deli and have a sandwich and then get directly back in the cab, go back to Newark. It's going to cost me a lot of money, but get back on a plane and, you know, and be back here. And I could complete all of this almost like in a little bit over 24 hours. The idea that these things are so close now and that with Things like this podcast where we're in the basement, we're like in a parking garage somewhere on the outskirts of Tel Aviv, right? But it's listened to everywhere. I mean, I'm sure you guys know your metrics, right? right. And when who listens to you. When you look at some of those numbers, those numbers must be shocking. It's like, oh, this, look at this person in Sri Lanka who yep. every week tunes into the Haaretz and, you know, podcast, right? This world that is so enmeshed and that people really live these lives of cross borders and every Jewish discussion is an Israel discussion. By consequence, every Israeli discussion becomes a Jewish, you know, discussion because of the ease with which, you know, information travels is also manipulated, is also falsified, is also and weaponized. And so to me, what really I think sets me apart is, you know, they say like Jewish American writer when you're talking about the Pantheon or whatever of the people you just named. Roth used to say, I'm not a Jewish novelist. I'm an American novelist. Right, right. And I just, you know... Sure, but I, I don't even know what any of these things mean anymore. I mean, I know that the people who tell me that they have meaning, I never trust. I mean, there are people who work as border guards. There are people who work at checkpoints. There are people who don't want to let someone on an airplane. Those are the only people who seem to really care what kind of a novelist I am, right? Yeah. But otherwise, I really feel that life certainly in New York, where I spend most of my time, but really in the intellectual spaces that I live in, I feel like life begins to take on the quality of language where, you know, a language absorbs things from all these other languages and imbricates it within its own fabric until you don't know, unless you sit and think about it, like where something is from or how something became inflected and found its way into your vernacular. And so I feel like part of this, I guess, interconnected space where nationality is much less important in terms of how I conceive it than nationality, how my nationality is other people conceive it. So is that what makes this confrontation in your book, the characters, 1959, that's what makes it a historical novel that, you know, the two are from such divides, you know, Jews from parts of the world that can't be breached and has no resemblance to what we have today with the fluidity and with the back and forth and with the merged Jewish identity, international Jewish identity. Right. We're, we're almost at like, you know, world Jewish conspiracy kind of point. Yeah. But no, I mean, 
right, don't right. tell them. Right, right. But I have this idea that, look, we're still living after something that is such a, an earthquake, right? Which is the most consequential decade in all of Jewish history, which is to say in all of world history, where in the span of really a decade, you have all of Europe's Jews like being like thrown to the slaughter, right? And then you have the founding of a Jewish state and then restorings of Jewish self-rule. This is a point at which all of world Jewry is becoming something else. It's when they're becoming Israeli. It's when they're becoming American. It's when a absolute change happens. And in that change, this is when these communities begin diverging. This is really that fork. And I wanted to set something at that fork, at that crossroads. And here's one guy who's taking this path and one guy who's taking the other. Now, of course, the irony is at that forking, you know, during the most consequential time of Jewish history, or at least Jewish history since the year 70, right? You have man who is not being killed in Europe, nor is he founding the state. He is basically in exile slash self-exile from the state, Benzio Netanyahu, and he is going around schnurring from town to town in the United States, raising money and awareness for for the revisionists, for Jabotinsky's movement. And he's living in suburban Long Island, in suburban Philadelphia, telling other people to make Aliyah. And just to quote from sort of the pinnacle, his job talk speech lecture Mm -hmm. that doesn't go very well. He says, this is what I think of America. Nothing. This is what I think of American Jews. Nothing. Your democracy, your inclusivity, your exceptionalism, nothing. Your chances for survival, none at all. And he's saying that after having moved his family from Jerusalem to Philadelphia. Absolutely. And that is his irony. And I mean, the, the man lives in a absolute contradiction. He lives in a hothouse of resentment. He's a person who only wants to be useful, but he's not allowed in his mind to be useful. And if only they let me serve the country, lead, you know, then things would be different. But if he can't, then he has to, you know, withdraw. I read his Origins of the Inquisition in 15th century Spain. It's a thousand page book. I read his his Bravanel thesis, his book on the Moranos. I was reading all this Benzio Netanyahu material, right? Mm -hmm. And we can get into, you know, how he kind of writes history like a novelist. We can talk about, you know, how he uses history for political gain, you know. But I do want to be clear with my own approach to it. I think if anyone who reads this book, they think, okay, he seems uncouth. He seems a little, you know, ugly. He seems all the Israeli stereotypes, right? But I kept on thinking throughout of the Coen brothers and of that line in The Big Lebowski where the dude says to Walter, says, you know, you're not wrong. You're just an asshole. <laughs> and that, and that's, that's Benzio Netanyahu. He's right. not wrong. He's just an asshole. Yeah. Well, after all his research, Anshel says that this whole story about him not getting a job at Hebrew U, mm-hmm. which sort of was the set sure. him on his exile trip to uh, America to make it in academia there, was really less about the lack of excellence in his scholarship than the fact that, according to many people, he I don't want to say he was an asshole, but let's just say he was not well liked. Sure. I mean, he, you know, helped set off a like a stink bomb during, you know, lectures and he's publishing all of these crazy editorials in revisionist periodicals that keep on getting shut down. But it's also something that I find really fascinating. I mean, I think in American terms, we would say the immigrants kept taking his jobs because every year he's at Hebrew University and he's starting out, you know, you get more and more scholars from Europe coming over as refugees who will work for nothing. And it's that chauvinism here. Would you rather have a Palestine-educated professor of medieval European history or like the guy who used to work at the Sorbonne? 
Well, we've naturally been focusing on uh, Netanyahu because we're sitting mm-hmm. here in Israel, but just to give a moment to poor Ruben Blum, yeah. the anti-Semitism that he experiences on his campus, you know, so you sort of revisit some of the territory that we're familiar with in uh, Philip Roth uh, campus novels, etc. That hush-hush, waspy kind of anti-Semitism mm-hmm. that happens there, it almost seems like kind of quaint now. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, if you're writing a campus no- about a Jewish professor in a campus novel now, boy, would it be uh, it would different. You know, he really felt the felt the date there. Right. Right. I mean, but I really wanted to layer on. I think about it almost as, as an archaeological technique of you have the strata of 1959, 1960 in its most material sense. You know, I, I wasn't around 1960. I don't know, you know, but you want to make it look like you think it looks and you want to have the themes that you think were around. But the idea then to layer contemporary the identity politics debates on top of that and the idea of discussions of safe spaces, for example, I realize if you take a left wing discussion of a, a so-called left discussion of a safe space like we would have now and you put it on top of a revisionist Zionist argument from, you know, the 20s. They're almost identical. Yep. There, people forget that there's a really one of the, the key things that sets like a literature apart, right, is that literature really always exists in three times simultaneously. There's the time that something is happening, and then if there's a narrator, there's the time from which it's narrated. So this book is obviously, it's Ruben Blum looking back on his past, and then there's the time in which someone's reading it. And so you have to sort of triangulate among all those periods in order to, I think, create a sense of distance and change. Mm Mm-hmm. I made Ruben Blum a professor, yeah, and a professor <laughs> of taxation studies. Or yeah. the, the history of, of taxation and taxation's influence on political events. First of all, I don't know if that's a real discipline or not. I just, but I was, I, and I was thinking a little. I'm bit, sure it is. There's a, there's a discipline for everything. Sure, yeah. right, right. Someone wrote a thesis about it. Definitely, I don't know if there's a department of it, but you know, Benzino Netanyahu. A lot of his writing about medieval Europe and medieval European history, it always involves you know these vizier-like court Jews. Right, like the Hofjuda, the Judio del Corte, these Jews who were tax farmers for the nobility. Right, they were people who basically, like, some duke wants to go to war, you get the Jew to get the money to get the army to go to war. So I wanted to have the Reuben Blum figure almost be this sort of court Jew, the professor of taxation studies. But I was also honestly thinking a lot about Harold, and there's this is why there's so much Harold Bloom in the book because it's the idea of taxation is, you know, what do you owe? You pay taxes into a common civil society. You know, you put your money in with your neighbors. So it's the roads you use in common. It's the, 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 the pipes. It's the wires. It's all of this infrastructure that creates our common space. And I was thinking about Harold's anxiety of influence. Essentially, the idea that we wake up, we're all too belated. We're born too late. Everyone feels like they're born after everything great has happened. And we look at everything that's been made from the past until now, and it completely intimidates us. How can we possibly contribute anything? How can I make anything original? Who am I with all of this history on my back? And so it's Harold's psychoanalytic idea, essentially that in order to give us the smallest amount of space in which to create or which to live, we have to willfully misunderstand the past and say, you know what? Only I can correct it. And that's how an artist can then add something to the canon, Mm -hmm. right? If they say the past was wrong, but I can correct it. And what's funny is that I think creates an enormous space for you to be creative. But for an artist, but if a politician thinks that way, 
that all of the past was wrong and only I can correct it, that's how you get a BB. Or a Trump. Or a Trump. Or a Trump. No, absolutely. Absolutely. I have to say, you know, as someone who lives in Israel and contact with Israelis all the time, a lot of uh, Ben Sion Netanyahu's ideas don't seem that, you know, it's still kind of the direction of the Israeli school system. I've had three kids go through it, you know, Holocaust, Holocaust, disaster, disaster, disaster. And at the end of the road, the land of Israel and that uh, that solves everything. That's still yeah. like not uncommon. And then lunch. <laughs> right. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. But in many ways, everything in Jewish history is set up to argue against the existence of Jewish history, mm-hmm. right? That the cyclicity of Jewish history where, you know, it doesn't matter what's the difference between this year and this year. What's the difference between that exile and that exile? Well, it doesn't matter because in every place we are hated, in quotes, in every place we are murdered, in every place. And so the idea that there's a constant repetition of disaster and then there's an ultimate redemption is a, a version of history that is essentially anti-historical. Mm-hmm. And so one of the great contradictions of Benzino Netanyahu is that he's a historian who doesn't believe in history. I have to ask, you spend a lot of time in Israel? You spend a couple weeks a year, etc.? Oh, yeah, yeah. More yeah, than yeah. that sometimes. Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, not during COVID. <laughs> I was... Um, I was here in November, but very briefly. But I mean, then I, before I hadn't been in, in, in three years. You speak Hebrew, you understand Hebrew, you read Hebrew literature in Hebrew. I mean, not of Benzion Netanyahu's era, <laughs> but yes, more contemporary things. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, certainly some of Benzion Netanyahu's letters of the, the 50s were were pretty tough. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, rough reading. Yeah. So I'm just curious, you know, your counterparts here, your friends, fellow writers, etc., people you've spent time with in Israel, what's their reaction to you having, you know, the chutzpah, for mm. lack of a better word, to have uh, written such a deep dive into these iconic figures in Israeli life? Well, I have to say, the book was rejected by 12 publishers in the United States. Wow. So let's just start with that. By 12 publishers in the United States, they rejected it. I think they rejected it because they thought it was too niche. That's it. It wasn't, you know, it was just, we're going to publish a book that, what the hell is this title? Right. And so it took me a while to, I lost my publisher, to be frank, with this book. And I went with another publisher, right, because they, Random House didn't want it. And then the situation repeated itself, but in, in Israel, no publisher wanted to do it. I mean, some of them talked to lawyers and had, you know, lawyers kind of write briefs, but everyone was afraid of getting sued, a slap lawsuit, you know, but, you know, they were afraid, I think a lot, a lot of them were of, of demons that they like, were hearing in their heads. Mm-hmm. Right? And no lawsuits? No, but I just, I think that like, you know, people were just, they, they, their fears were going to manifest, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, and so one person was willing to do it. It was Oded Carmeli, who has uh, Havala Haba and then Havala Or, which is his publishing house and his magazine's publishing house, respectively. And uh, Erez Volk, who is a translator, was the first novel that I was ever done. First novel he's ever published. Wow. Mostly he's, he does poetry. And, and first time he's done an American writer, something in translation. I think he had to like beg, borrow, and steal to like, you know, get the littlest bit of money that I didn't even get, but that goes to like the co-agent who then has to pay the co-agent for the licensing. And he put it out there. Mm-hmm. And so his first novel ever published wins the Pulitzer. And I think that the circle around Carmeli and around the publishing house and the magazine I would hope, and I don't want to speak for him, and I know that he's talked a little bit about it in, in, in press that he's done, but I don't want to be a lesson to Israeli literature culture. But like, let him be. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, he's a person who, who, without any, you know, official support or government support, like, went out, took a risk on something that he, like, believed in, 
right? One thing that we can take away from it is that how is it this guy who is most at home in bars in Tel Aviv and has no official, how is he closest to an understanding of an American Jewish conception that when all of the official offices of culture you know, we're deaf and blind to it. And I'm not stupid, you know. I know that those are the very people who, the second I win the Pulitzer Prize, they call me and they say, you know, will you come here? Will you come here? Will you do this? Will you talk to the Bronfman, Steinhardt, Kushner, whatever the hell it is, right? <laughs> right, like all of those guys, they line up, right? Because yeah, yeah. the Pulitzer, it's a good waspy sounding name. It's a good thing. Like, it's a big prize. But they weren't anywhere a year ago. Mm-hmm. And that should be a lesson. Well, you are not, a guy in the political fray. You're not even on Twitter, as no. far as I can see. I mean, Joshua Cohen, there are a lot of Joshua yeah, Cohens no. on Twitter. None of them are you. No. So the last Jewish American novelist uh, who won the Pulitzer, Michael Shapin, did not start out as being very politically involved, but slowly, slowly, he kind of got dragged into the conversation, discussing what he thinks about Israel and the Palestinians, etc. Are you just going to, with all of the spotlight on you, going to make it a point not to address it? Is it something that you do discuss or you do... Uh, talk about uh, what my politics are I mean exactly. I, just, I, yeah. I mean I love that it's just like you know you ask me how much money I make you know <laughs> I mean are you married like, I didn't ask you what no, they were I, I asked I, you no, if you're going to talk no, about them I, I mean I yeah sure I have a moral compass and I have a strongly developed ethical sense but there's also a part of me that has no politics and has all politics. I think that like the, the only way that you can be a novelist is if you can sit next to anyone and when they tell you their story and they're crying, you have to cry with them. And I have that natural, stupid ability to be convinced of anything by anyone. And I also have developed in myself the ability, I think, to convince people of what I want to convince them of. And I understand how easily manipulable I am, how easily manipulable other people are, and I'm a student of that manipulation. I'm a student of that rhetoric, and hopefully, as is, by the way, Netanyahu, right? But like, I hopefully use whatever mastery I have for the good, right? Mm-hmm. But I do believe that there should be spaces made that are, and I don't mean that not everything should be political. I don't mean like, why does everything have to be put into a political context? I mean that part of the real beauty of life for me is the ability of transformation of metamorphosis. To be able to say to myself, what would a psychopath extremist, of any extreme, what would they feel? What would they think? And when it comes to, for example, the categories of Israeli life, Israeli politics, which I would, and I would never speak because I'm not a citizen. I'm not a citizen and I, I, I'm a citizen of the United States and I don't talk about American politics because they're too stupid to talk about, right? <laughs> but one of the things that, that I really think is, 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 is important is like of all the categories of, of Israeli life, right? Where when you're here, everyone tries to put you in, in, you know, which box are you in? They try to sort you, you know. It's interesting because, okay, of course, like, you know, Chiloni, look at me. I mean, people can't, it's a podcast, people can't look at me, but, you know, wouldn't we say datlash because you were once religious? Sure, we might say that too, but I don't know that you would see it on me, but sure, okay. But the other thing is that really, if I had to describe myself in, in some way and pick one of the crazy boxes that this country has, it's like I'm actually Haredi because I'm an extremist of literature. It's like, you know, they wake up at six o'clock to Davin, I'm up at five, but I'm writing. They have these principles that they must follow. And, you know, I have triple of those principles and I write them myself. I'm an extremist for the dedication, dedicated to literature, more dedicated than they are 
to whatever nonsense they're dedicated to, right? Mm -hmm. And I am prepared to die for it in the sense of my entire life is dedicated to it because it's the only way that I can truly, truly experience life, I think, is through other people's eyes and projecting myself through literature. And that's a practice that at least to keep it healthy, let's say, needs to be done every day. Well, that's an acceptable form of extremism, if I can say. Well, right. And as a true extremist, I would say that I don't care. You know, it's just, but it's, but you know, it, it's yeah. people treat a book like it's a, you make a nice thing, you bring it to market, you sell it. And it's like, no, the, the real ones are made by crazy people. I won't say speaking of crazy people, but my final question yeah. to you is no word from the Detanyahu's since this uh, book was published. And now that you've got the big prize, do you expect to hear from them? I would hope they're smarter than that. I mean, you know, if they were, no, I just, I, you know, people I ask me that question here a fair amount and I always, I, I beginning to feel more and more like, um, you know, when they say, you know, if you're in love with someone, you know, you just, you can't call them all the time. And, you know, and it's like, so I have this idea that like, am I like waiting by the phone for like BB to call? No. Am I like outside? And cause I was just like, you know, knocking on the door. Or am I sitting at home crying saying, why isn't he thinking of me? I don't care. He's not a person who has literary opinions I'm particularly interested in. And also at the same time, I do have the basic respect of knowing that it is his father. Right. Right. I mean, look, if BB and his brother. Yeah, and his brother. Absolutely, his mom. And his, right. If I woke up tomorrow and B.B. had written a book about my father, about Barry Cohn, Atlantic City, New Jersey, I would be first in line. But at the same time, if there was something in it that wounded me about reading about my father, that's how I could project. It's still his father. And so the idea that some stranger from Jersey, and people from Philadelphia typically look down and people from South Jersey, right? So some like, you know, farmer from South Jersey, me, you know, is writing about his father, I understand how to him it's nonsense. So I'm not so worried about that. What I do think is interesting, though, is if I was a novelist who was interested in ever writing about Netanyahu again, which, believe me, I'm not, <laughs> you know, how would I end his current story? When you think about the ways it could go, and it's not just the typical, like, comedy tragedy, right? Like, you know, happy ending, you know, it feels like reality is kind of writing like a frustrated novelist, kind of always like flirting with an ending and then it gets not sure and then scratching it out and then starting again. I don't know how many more drafts we can take. You'll just have to keep reading Haaretz to find out how that story ends because that's what we're all about. And, you know, sometimes the truth is stranger than fiction. Well, I, I like it. I like this idea of, you know, that's what you're all about because <laughs> that's saying that Haaretz is going to write the ending for him. <laughs> right. It's like, you know, it's like old William Burroughs line. We don't report the news. We write it. Yeah. Well, yeah. that's what he probably thinks. That's but, what he you know, we, yeah. <laughs> anyway, Joshua Cohen, we are super honored and really thrilled that you came here on the Haaretz Weekly Podcast. No, oh, it's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. And that wraps things up for Haaretz Weekly. If you miss the news and want to catch up on Israel's volatile political situation, check out the Haaretz Weekend podcast where I interviewed analyst Dalia Scheinland, who spoke about the precarious state of Prime Minister Naftali Bennett's coalition. And tune in later this week when Amir Tibon will be hosting Haaretz Weekend to discuss this week's events. Many thanks to Joshua Cohen, to producer Amir Factor, and editor Maya Ben-Nissan. I'm Allison Kaplan-Summer. Until next time, Shalom from Tel Aviv.